0: Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 473, air date October 23rd, 2019. Yeah. Okay, so
1: hitting live. How are you? One second, it hasn't happened as
0: yet. Yeah, we're live on Twitter right now. So people who are listening, this is Dr. Shiva Yadir. I'm with Ramola, who, um, um, who is in Quincy, right Ramola?
1: I'm in Quincy, Quincy, so, Massachusetts. Yeah, so
0: we're going to have a discussion about our campaign, um, the caste system, be it India or the United States, and why I'm running for U.S. Senate.
1: So, welcome everyone. Good morning and welcome to Ramola D. Reports. I'm Ramola D. and I'm so excited this morning to be here with Dr. Shiva Ayodhurai, who is um, a very illustrious person all around. He is a U.S. Um, Senate candidate running in Massachusetts. Um, against a seat that's currently occupied by other Republicans, I gather. No, they're um, Democrats. Oh, they're Democrats. Okay. Yeah, Ed Markey. So you, you can yep. describe that further. You're running yep. um, for a seat that's currently occupied by Senator Ed Markey. Right. And I understand the other candidate who's currently running is Joe Kennedy.
0: He's going to challenge Ed Markey, yeah.
1: He's going to challenge at Marky, great. So let me uh, continue with a little bit more of an in- introduction about Dr. Shiva. Dr. Shiva is an MIT scientist and, in fact, holds several degrees from MIT. And I am um, extremely impressed looking at his bio because he has degrees in electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, computer science, systems biology, And very young, and this is one of the most outstanding uh, biographical achievements and accomplishments uh, about Dr. Shiva is that in 1978, as a 14-year-old, after completing a very special program in computer science at NYU, in the mathematical science department, he was recruited by the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey as a research fellow, where he was the one who developed the very first electronic emulation of the entire interoffice mail system, which is what we know currently as email. And as he says often, he, uh, you know, email apparently did not come out of DARPA, did not come out of the war industry but it came out of the health sciences industry, and it came from his desk. So that is one of his most outstanding achievements, it appears. He has many other achievements to his credit. Uh, He has been giving talks on climate change, the Paris Accords, vaccines, his own views on vaccines, a systems approach to medicine which incorporates both the eastern and western forms of medicine, and um, various other aspects i think about science and technology which i hope we can touch on a little bit today because one of the big issues facing all of us today is the politicizing of science so hopefully we'll touch on that i understand dr shiva is writing a book on this subject and i hope to hear more about that there's more his w- Ramola, is Romola, one second um
0: Ramola, i don't know if the sound so uh, can you just check the sound yep on, on twitter oh, we're we having ho-
1: issues with sound well, no no
0: we're we're getting people saying that they're not able to hear you so we're just oh, really? we're just checking it i am not sure okay. on youtube how it's working
1: I can hear oh let me check you can on hear YouTube. fine yeah
0: okay it's fine i think we're oh, okay people can hear now okay yeah. good okay, go ahead. good all right
1: so i was just giving people a basic introduction of Dr. Shiva, and you can go to his website, VEShiva.com. He's got a wonderful uh, biographical note over there, which talks all about his very illustrious science and tech background. Um, and one of the things I was leading up to, um, as I'm getting ready to give the floor to here to Dr. Shiva, is that it's because of his um, very focused science and tech background that he seems to have a real understanding of the politics of science today, and how science and tech is playing into government. But this morning, one of the big issues that we're going to be talking about is uh, something he suggested, actually, which is the caste system in America, sort of the unknown or undisclosed caste system in America, which is somewhat similar to the caste system in India that both of us are familiar with. So first of all, Dr. Shiva, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. And um, I'm so excited about this morning's interview. Where would you like to start?
0: Well, I think it's always good to start, you know, history is probably the best context. So uh, you mentioned the caste system, and I think it's probably good to start there. You know, in the United States, uh, we have a caste system. The fact that Joe Kennedy, who's running for U.S. Senate, can even think he should run or he should even be running, or the fact that someone like Ed Mark, who's been in the Senate now for 46 years, or someone like Elizabeth Warren continues to think that it's okay for her to run after she lied to get into Harvard, um, uses her fake credentials And all of these three people, and fundamentally the entire Democratic Party has devolved into a party of the aristocracy right now. At one point, they used to present themselves as a party of the working people. But if you fundamentally look at it, they've become the party of the aristocracy. They're basically their own elite caste system, particularly the leadership of it. So if you look at the the reason I mention Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey, and Joe Kennedy, these people are what I call fake fighters. One is a fake Indian. And they promote themselves as though they're fighting for the working people in this country. A Harvard University promotes itself as though it's some very liberal, quote unquote, liberal university that's, you know, uh, drives people into caring about diversity and inclusivity. But when you really peel away the layers, what you find out is these people are the most racist, uh, aristocratic, casteist people in the world. And, to, and in fact, in Boston, we call the elites the Boston Brahmins. You can look it up. OK,
1: we do.
0: Yeah. And, and, and this is no accident. And to me, um, uh, when I look at where I come from, you know, not only from the the, the system, a deplorable system of in the Indian caste system, which treated me, my family and others, you know, as untouchables, that we were the lowest of the low. And the fact that I even made it to the United States, so I'll talk about it, that is quite extraordinary. And then I grew up in New Jersey, you know, in Patterson, in Clifton, in Persephone, all working class towns. Only the last several years, my parents moved to one of the elite um, public schools uh, so we could get a better education. But even there, I'll I'll discuss more of that. But fundamentally, in the United States, we have a caste system. And I've always wondered, why is it that I even want to participate in politics? Why is it I was an activist growing up?
1: question I wanted to ask you how you made that journey, you know, because well, it's, um, it's never, never been unusual for Indians really to participate in politics in the U.S. Well,
0: most Indians in the United States are racist. And I say this, not uh, it's just a statement of fact. Um, you won't find a lot of Indians like me in the United States or for that matter, my family. Uh, Do so, you mean
1: supremacists sort of with a sort of a Brahminic? No, they're actually racist. They're kind of racist
0: towards people here and they're actually castis which is even worse. So let me give you the context. Okay. Um, you know, when I grew up in India, it took, you know, I, I remember being one of my earliest memories being a four-year-old kid playing with a friend of mine and, uh, you know, going to, you know, after playing, I think football or something, I was, we, we went over to his house and his mother made me stand outside of the house, oh. called me the word Shudra and okay. said that I, and gave me, would not allow me to come into their house. And this is like, I mean, this memory is so still deep within my psyche, gave me water in a different bowl and a different cup, okay? Because I was not um, I, I was not at their stature, right? I was beneath them. So I remember... Th- I
1: had experienced that at the age of 17 um, with a family, a Brahmin family, who would um, give you water in a different tumbler and then wash the tumbler because you drank water out of it. Right, so, <laughs> so you're basically... This bas- memory you're describing is even worse.
0: It's yeah, so, uh, so I, then I remember going to my mom... And my mom said, oh, yeah, they said that's how they treat us. And she explained to me when she would go to the well as a child in her village, how they would shoo her away as though she was some animal or a pig or something. Oh so um, so this journey of my deep interest in politics began at that age. Why was there this injustice? Because it seemed awfully wrong. But I was also motivated in, in science because my grandmother was a village healer. She was, She didn't do this as a full-time job. She did it because of a noble service, but she worked 16, 18 hours a day. She was black as charcoal, had tattoos all over her, but she had learned the traditional systems of Indian medicine, and on weekends, she was a village healer. People would come to her home, she would observe their face, practice a ancient system of medicine, uh, which is quite extraordinary, and I saw her figure out particular um, either uh, combinations of herbs or foods to give those particular people, it was personalized medicine, which is what Western medicine wants to become. So I was moved how this woman could do this. I was also moved by the fact why there was injustice in the society. Now, you have to understand, my parents were quite extraordinary people. My mother uh, was a liberated woman by the time she was eight years old. Why? Because her father ran off with the maid. And she realized that she would have to stand up on her own two feet. So by the time my mom uh, not only got a bachelor's degree, but a master's degree. There's a picture of my dear mom, this dark-skinned Indian woman, among 40 other men with turbans. This was in the 1940s. So a lot of women talk about women's liberation, but my mom was beyond a liberated woman. She was also a fighter. My dad came from war-torn Burma, where he had not seen a schoolhouse or a book until he was 12 years old. And then he came to a small village and started studying under a mango tree with a, with a mentor. And he ended up getting an engineering degree, in fact, ended up becoming uh, one of the biggest industrialists in India, Gopala Singhania's right-hand man. So my parents are quite, they're basically geniuses. Who in that condition came from there, endured a lot in India, and then somehow came to the United States. So you're looking at someone, the fact that I even came here is probably one in a hundred trillion, and they never compromised. Uh, Many people of the Indian caste system either converted to some form of Christianity or Islam, because if they converted to those religions, they were afforded a lot of benefits. So my parents were uncompromising fighters. So when we came to the United States, so that was my background in India. So I know who my people are, they're the everyday people who were told that they were nobodies, that they were nothing. But when I came to the United States, I experienced the same thing. We we settled in Patterson, New Jersey, primarily, this is in in the early 70s, 1970. Uh, Vietnam War is going on, you have segregation in this country. Um, We came to uh, Patterson, New Jersey.
1: Segregation in the
0: 1970s? Yeah, definitely. Have you been to Patterson? Patterson is predominantly all black still. You know, it's all African-American. I see. Yeah. I see.
1: Well, I've been to New Jersey to some of those places, you know, Newark and so forth.
0: Yeah. And, and then we moved to Clifton, which is a a, a white working class town, and then Persephone. And then finally into Livingston, New Jersey, which is predominantly Jewish. And, and uh, you know, great school system, all public school system. So my parents kept moving to the better school system. In the, in the Jewish school system, I think my sister and I were the only two dark skinned Indian kids among uh, 4,000 people, the Jewish part of the Jewish religion teaches people that they're the chosen people of God. And they're the only ones who could be smart. So you can imagine when I started winning every award that was problematic to certain people. And I know I was also a good athlete. So my entire life has been about fighting, not only for me, but fighting for this other value. So I could be the best student. I'll give you an example in seventh grade, um, in one of the New Jersey schools, I was a best student, but I also played soccer and baseball. I was a great pitcher. Uh, our team won, you know, uh, state finals. So I wasn't just a nerd. But I remember this vividly in seventh grade. They had a chemistry exam that you had to take to win the award. Well, I was like the top student. the this The teachers would not allow me to take that exam. Okay? Why? No reason. I remember my mom and dad coming home from after... 12 hours working on a job, my mom and dad went in and bitched out that teacher, what extraordinarily disgusting that was, that they would dare do that to their son, that we, le- we thought we left that behind in India. Anyway, I took the exam and I won. My point is, I learned at a young age, it doesn't matter how good you are, but you also have to learn to fight. You only get what you fight for. And so
1: are you saying that very young, you kind of figured out that there was some kind of system of privilege in place already? I,
0: yeah, this isn't something intellectual, okay? This is something very simple. Every, Visceral,
1: yeah.
0: Well, everyday working people it. deal with this. So my, you know, the, the great regard I had for my grandmother or the people when I grew up in India, the same regard I had for my everyday uh, people that I grew up in New Jersey. I was, you know, I was a landscaper. I learned how to paint you know, uh, you know, do house painting. So working class folks in New Jersey were tough as nails, and same were the, uh, you know, the people I grew up in India. So those so are. So you my-
1: felt a camaraderie with the working class
0: people. Oh yeah, and definitely, and you have to understand, most of the Indians who came here at that time were basically, you know, people of the upper caste, and they would always try to figure out my last name to figure out how much they should discriminate against me. This was just in the milieu. So and this what, is
1: something Indians know, right? That people's last... Well,
0: Indians know, but they don't want to talk about it. Most yep. Indians are extremely racist and extremely... Suprem- especially towards other Indians. And the reason that's true is because India never got independence. It is a big lie that in 1947, India got independence. Let's, what really happened in India was that the British were planning on leaving in, by the 1940s. Yes. There was a revolutionary movement in India taking place in the 1920s. where where Indian revolutionaries, like the American revolutionaries, wanted to have a good revolution and kick out the British and establish their nationalism. What happened was they parachuted this guy called Gandhi in. It's the biggest fraud in probably history because he did nothing for the South Africans. He was essentially trying to fight for the rights of the wealthy Hindus, the aristocratic Hindus in South Africa to get trading rights in the Transvaal region. And he failed miserably at that. He comes to India, and the most, uh, the most establishment elements, Indian elements of Indian politics, who were essentially bootlickers to the British, saw in him a way to quiet down the revolutionary movement. In fact, if you see the movie Gokhale, this one aspect is quite accurate. Uh, I mean, Gandhi, you see this guy Gokhale befriend him, lets him stay in his palatial house where he can act as though he's a man of the people, You know, doing his little weaving, converting to this white outfit, And Gandhi proceeds to be injected to quell down a organic revolutionary movement. Dr. Shabal,
1: I have to tell you, you're actually at this point, you know, you're sort of attacking a sacred cow here. Well, no, no, most Indians uh,
0: actually know this.
1: Not necessarily in my space, but, you know, in other people's space where uh, people see Dr. Gandhi, sorry, Mahatma Gandhi as the figurehead of the Indian revolution. Well, well, that
0: needs to be busted up. I I think what Trump... yeah.
1: Very interesting. So yeah,
0: so well, you I should go read. Kind of radical. You should go. It's not even radical. Go read Gandhi's no? memoirs. Um, okay. He was for violence against the Indian people and nonviolence against the British. I'll give you an example. When the when the mutiny took place and Sikh soldiers were hung, you know, on the telephone or on the poles. Oh
1: my God. Gandhi yeah.
0: said, you know, he felt the punishment was just because they did not obey authority. Okay,
1: this was he's talking about the 1857 so called. Yeah, it was
0: one one of these. My point is, you're looking at an individual, he wasn't he did not come from the people up, he was imposed. Okay, him and Nehru were very good friends, and what did they actually do? They ensured that white men with crowns left India peacefully and brown men with white hats took over. That's what they did. They didn't do anything beyond that. So for 70 years, India had a monarchy, a brown monarchy ruling India from Nehru to his daughter, Indira Gandhi, then to their son, um, you know, Rahul Gandhi. And then were trying to get the Cokehead in there. Um, this guy, uh, uh, what's the name? Rahul Gandhi in there, right?
1: Rajiv Gandhi. Yeah, Rajiv Gandhi was their long, son. And, you know, and so, there was Sanjay Gandhi
0: with him. Yeah, Rajiv. yeah. so this is a monarchy. Okay. Yeah. And And that's why you had such deep corruption in India for 70 years. Nothing ever really got resolved until Modi came. Modi was the first guy, whether you like him or not, he did not come from that dynastic rule. And he essentially, like Trump, started throwing uh, some significant holes at this dynastic establishment. So that's a good development. Some people may say, well, he uh, is a cultural nationalist, a progressive nationalist. Yeah, we the could... BJP, for instance.
1: I think a lot of people raise questions about yeah, so, so about but, but, but yeah, so, so, so
0: sometimes patterns. things don't happen in perfection, just like Donald Trump's win is not perfect. But you know what? His win was a necessary disruption to the aristocracy between the Republicans and Democrats that was growing in this country. So my point is that... Um, uh, you know, I'm one of you, I'm, one, I'm an everyday person because I never connected with these aristocrats and I've been fighting them all my life. You know, so when I uh, first came to MIT, there was an Indian students club and this, they would try to figure out my last name. And I wanted the club to be much more political and discuss things and eventually I, w- I was uh, uh, asked to leave. And these were the Indians who come from India, go to IIT, get on their little ship, come over here, Right. And they're like robots. They come here, they get their education, get their master's degree, then go get married and then go make money. Okay. They're basically robots. And, and
1: isn't IIT also a heavily Brahminical institution with
0: only with maybe they're, Brahmin they're,
1: kids being permitted to get in? It was that way when I was doing my, you know, my undergraduate physics yeah. way back. In
0: the yeah. And, and this is a topic the Brahmins in the United States do not want to talk about. And most of the Brahmins in the United States are actually Democrats. Because the Democratic Party, they love because it's a party of the aristocracy and it's a racist party also. So, you know, when, so for me, when I came to MIT... Do you
1: really, I'm sorry, do you really feel the Democrats are more racist than the Republicans? You were just talking about an aristocracy at the very top. Well, 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 well,
0: Well, the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment are one. However, Donald Trump's win essentially blew the hell out of the Republican establishment and has created a small opening, a historical opening where people like me can run and potentially okay. we can change a narrative on that. Okay. That's what the opportunity is. And I think um, that opportunity is quite significant. That's taking place. An opportunity like this would typically not occur, but it has taken place. That's why I'm running. But and do
1: you feel it's taken place because of his influence?
0: Well, it's taken place because if it wasn't Donald Trump, it was going to occur. You know, one of my mentors and uh, uh, people that someone I've known and I still keep in touch with is Noam Chomsky. And Noam and I, in 2007, when I got back from India after exposing the corruption in India under death threats, you know, when I went there for my Fulbright, we can talk more about it. And I exposed this deep level of corruption in the Indian science institution. We were talking about this when I got back and Noam was saying, and he and I were discussing that, Basically, both parties were no longer serving anyone and that someone would come to address the interests of the American white working class because their interests were completely being ignored. And so if it wasn't Trump, someone like him was going to come because what was happening was the elites on the East Coast and West Coast, you know, a multiracial aristocracy thought that they know better than everyone else, that you know, that we should focus on gay rights or transgender rights or, I mean, these aren't wrong issues, but they weren't affecting the broad mass of the American working class. And they
1: were cosmetic, you think?
0: They were not only cosmetic issues, they weren't addressing the bigger issues, jobs, healthcare. you know, the level of, uh, you know, uh, infant mortality in, in Massachusetts, the in way. the United States is higher than any developing nation. They weren't addressing significant issues. So Donald Trump's coming you could say it was predicted um, he just happened to be the right person at the right place at the right time you know okay. but for me I've always been an activist when I came to MIT 1981 uh, uh, you mentioned you know I created the first email system I did that before I came to MIT it was done in Newark New Jersey you know I, I looked at the entire system of office communications inbox outbox folders wrote 50,000 lines of code called it email. And got the first U.S. copyright. There's no controversy who invented email except the one created by the white liberal elite who want to always think that all great innovations must come from the uh, military industrial academic complex. That it surely could not come. That's
1: the story. That's the narrative we get that everything came from DARPA, right?
0: Yeah, it did. And by the way, a 14 year old uh, American kid in uh, Franklin, Idaho, created the first TV. Okay, it took him 60 years to finally get recognition. In my case, it's a dual issue. A because of my you can look at what I look like and I fight the military industrial academic complex. However, working people in this country, whether black or white or brown, know that I'm their fighter. When they look at me, they see uh, me in them and uh, they see that I will fight for them and I'll win for them. So when I came to MIT, you'll see that I started a, a radical student newspaper we exposed the Democrats and Republicans. This is back in 1980s because I saw a aristocrat, a, a, a black aristocrat by the name of Jesse Jackson, who sold out the entire movement to, uh, you know, uh, against supposedly the Republican elite to Mondale. He was creating this thing called the rainbow movement in 1984. There was a presidential election and Jesse Jackson was essentially the not so obvious establishment. So By 1984, I had figured out politics in a a reasonably sophisticated way where I realized there were people on the ground who were actually fighting, everyday people. And then there were the educated or the the establishment. And then the more insidious group was a not so obvious establishment, be it Gandhi in India or Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton uh, in the United States. So we started a newspaper called The Student. We agitated on campus. We, We exposed all sorts of issues. So... I've always been a fighter. It just so happens I I never cared for electoral politics because I saw it as just a complete corrupt system. But when Donald Trump won in 2016 and he was eviscerating both the Democrats and the Republicans, I registered as an independent, voted for him. And then after I went to his inauguration, registered as a Republican in 2017 and ran for U.S. Senate against uh, Elizabeth Warren. Um, who is a, a, an epitome of the aristocracy? She's an epitome of a complete fake fighter. And the fact that she, uh, um, you know, said that she was a Native American Indian and used it to pretty much get whatever wealth and whatever stature she has is quite disgusting. So when we ran, you know, our campaign slogan was "Only the real Indian could defeat the fake Indian." Amazing slogan. We had pictures of her and her headdress and me side by side all over Massachusetts. And we forced her to take the DNA test, not Donald Trump. He did other things calling her Pocahontas, but we must have had at least 2,000 4 8 signs all over Massachusetts. And the volunteers that we had on the ground relentlessly attacked her. Not the Republican Party. The Republican Party ran a guy who faked a Photoshop picture uh, with, with Donald Trump. Okay, there's three hands in the picture. They were so afraid of me that they ran a fake Trumper. Now, going, you know, if you want to hearken... Uh, did you
1: actually say that you kind of uh, compelled her to take a DNA test?
0: Did she take- I sent her a DNA test kit. She—it's all—it's all on—it's all, on, all documented. She returned oh, it. Okay. We sent her three DNA test kits. She finally took it because everywhere you went in Massachusetts, you couldn't get away without seeing that headdress and me exposing her. So my point is, you're you're looking at someone who's a fighter, and people in this country, and people in Massachusetts. By the way, Massachusetts is rated as the third most corrupt state in the entire union, third most, worst infrastructure, the number one highest growth in homelessness rate. In, Let's in, talk
1: about these things because, you know, we're both in Massachusetts and um, I'm curious because people don't talk so much about the corruption in Massachusetts. What exactly do you see? How exactly has it entered, you know, the halls of state government, for instance, and city governments all, of, all across this the state? And what's the effect that you see?
0: Well, first of all, I believe three of the leadership of the Massachusetts State House were indicted and thrown in prison, just to give you an idea, okay? You have a rich history of corruption in this country going all the way back to the Kennedys. Okay, the Kennedy is essentially one of the big crime families of Massachusetts. You know, they made their money bootlegging, and there's a huge history to them. One of them killed a woman and got away with it, all right? So oh, you're there's
1: mo- a huge controversy about that. However, are you talking well, about? Well, there's no controversy.
0: Yeah, there's no controversy. You know, the co- by the way, whenever there's real truth, the opposition creates controversy. Like, I invented email, so they call it a controversy. They go on Wikipedia and say a controversial claim. The truth is so apparent on some of these things that those in power create controversies. I, I- I agree that
1: that surely is the way this is it works, this is I just a
0: technique in of disinformation yeah. In this particular case with ted
1: kennedy i believe there is the controversies about the cia being involved
0: yeah i don't know and, about that i don't know about that um I I'll send if, uh, you a link
1: to a document uh, put out by a certain person, Charles Schlund, his affidavit, where uh, which is actually published on my website, part of it, it excerpts of it. Um, I'll send you the link to that. And you can well, let me
0: it. just tell you this. If you or I had done that, we'd be in prison. Okay? Whether it was conspiracy or not, I'm saying the treatment of you or I or everyday person -hmm. Would be a prison sentence for life. If it
1: looks like you were the one who was uh, responsible, well, yeah. I mean,
0: I mean, I mean, you could even be uh, alleged to say something, and you get dragged away. Okay, Um, the the governor of Massachusetts, his son, literally molested a woman on a flight. Okay, multiple witnesses. It's completely been Charlie Baker's son. It's completely been hidden away. So this is no different than a caste system that took took place and exists in India. Okay or the fact that if you're a member of the elite, there's a different yardstick for you and a different yardstick for everyone else, right? Bill Clinton... Yes, and isn't
1: that what's happening right now? And, you know, there's a kind of a barricading. Once people get into those holes of power, there's all sorts of laws that are being rolled out to say, oh, you can't, you know, talk about public officials in this way or that way, or you're going to be put on a watch list, things like that. So that's a way of barricading and fortressing. What do you think about all of that?
0: Well, I think I think what we're talking about is people in this country who voted for Donald Trump recognize that they had had enough of it, that they recognize that they're being mistreated, they're not being treated right. And the center of that corruption is Massachusetts. The center of all corruption, for that matter, in the world is Massachusetts. And I say this not without any hype, but if you just look at it, if you look at the two major institutions of science or engineering or uh, humanities. It's Harvard and MIT. They're MIT located in Massachusetts,
1: Harvard, yes. right?
0: If you go to MIT Kendall Square and you look in a less than hundred yard radius, you'll see all the major companies of the military industrial complex: Facebook, Google, Amazon, Monsanto, MIT. You go down the list: Pfizer. Everyone is in a one mile radius. It's the epi- I can give you the longitude and the latitude of if you believe in the concept of a deep state. It's I think it's about forty two degrees north, seventy two degrees west. You can look it up. That's essentially the center of Cambridge, Massachusetts. So my point is, the, I, so for me, so I find it quite ironic that a, a guy from India who came from Untouchables, who grew up in working class communities in New Jersey from nothing, you know, who went to MIT, got four degrees, has learned how the elites operate, gets this amazing opportunity to run for U.S. Senate and to expose these guys and to fight for those people who have no voice, be it in India or working people in New Jersey or in this country or this state. And that's what people need. They need someone like me because Joe Kennedy goes and takes pictures of homeless people. He takes pictures with brown people. We, I don't need those pictures. I got them in my album, my family album, okay? These people need to go get pictures <laughs> right. taken because they're all fake. Elizabeth Warren needs to fake her way in. Ed Markey has been in Congress for 46 years, 46 years. And what have they delivered? Homelessness. Massachusetts says 18% increase just in the last year. The highest increase in homelessness in the rate than any other state. Number three in crumbling crumbling infrastructure. When I mean infrastructure, bridges, roads. Uh, except That's in the small true. little vacuum around MIT, everyone else can go to hell. And the public integrity organization rated Massachusetts worst in corruption. Number three. And then you have Jeffrey Epstein. You look at the, you have Jeffrey Epstein Epstein who funded MIT, the president of MIT, who should resign, completely resign. He, after he knew Epstein was convicted, took more money from him. So what I want to say is that I feel an amazing honor to be a fighter and a warrior with all the assets that I've been able to accrue for everyday working people. And that's what this fight is going to be about. The United States Senate fight in 2020 is going to be an amazing opportunity For working people to finally have someone who represents them someone like me now they're gonna some people are gonna have to get over the fact that i may not look like the politician that they're used to looking at but i'm their fighter and i've always been fighting i mean you can go look at my credentials there's a picture of me burning the south african flag on the steps of mit i was a scientist who exposed monsanto when i went for a two-year period to india i was recruited by the. Uh, in, in 2008 and nine, recruited by the elite scientific institution to run the entire science institution of India. And I could have sat there in a beautiful bungalow, but instead of doing that, in six months, I exposed the corruption under death threats. I had to leave India and come back here. And I'm the and one... This was
1: your Fulbright that you were talking about?
0: Yeah. And then, and then, you know, when my mom was dying about six years ago and all the details of my inventing email went into the Smithsonian, it created a huge uproar because... You know, I was a good, humble Indian guy, never talked about it. And when that took place, you can see the vicious attacks by the liberal elite media, the democratic liberal elite media, who could not fathom the fact that email did not occur at MIT. And I fought for that. We filed a lawsuit for $35 million and we won. We put Gawker Media out of business. I was appointed the bankruptcy chairman. And, you know, today I'm running for U.S. Senate. We got 100,000 votes against Elizabeth Warren five times more than any independent candidate after both parties illegally kept me off the debate stage. But this time we're going to win and we're going to win for everyday people who actually need real representation. You know, policy wise, you look at the economy. We don't invest in infrastructure. Why? Because career politicians will not invest in long term infrastructure. They will invest in short term giving away people free stuff or regulations. There's three buckets to the economy. Regulations, right? Mm-hmm. Giving away free stuff for infrastructure. They always invest in bucket two or bucket one. They will never make the hard choice to invest in bucket three because they're not, they don't think they're going to get elected because that's all they care about doing. I'm going to run for only one term, but I'm going to work five times more than any of these guys because 80% of their time they work trying to get reelected. You look and at-
1: When you see bucket three, you want to get people, you want to give the working class more of an opportunity to stand up on their own and to- we we
0: need infrastructure okay we don't where china is already 200 years ahead in terms of their road bridges in terms of their digital infrastructure and if you you know MIT has a nice infrastructure on them but forget the rest of massachusetts right forget yeah, the southern it's part a little bit in, so in 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 New Bedford where 75% of the people are on food stamps forget the western part of massachusetts they live in their little bubbles and to hell with everyone else right so you look at something like healthcare. We can have amazing healthcare for everyone. Personalized healthcare which means one size doesn't fit all, but we have to eliminate about a half a trillion dollars in corruption which are middlemen called GPOs and PBMs group purchasing organizations which are three major organizations which purchase everything for hospitals and they crank up those costs by a factor of 10 or sometimes 10,000. So Those organizations, they have the right to give kickbacks to hospital administrators. And I'll talk more about this. But no one talks about the GPOs and PBMs, which have half a trillion dollars in fat. Elizabeth Warren won't talk about it because they fund her. And neither party talks about it. Uh, We need to eliminate the Safe Harbor Act of 2000, which allows these people to actually be corrupt. So that's how we lower healthcare costs. what exactly
1: does the safe harbor act do i mean what so let me so
0: what happened was in in um what happened what what happened was in uh, around late 90s and 2000 you see imagine there's a thousand hospitals each hospital has a hospital administrator right each hospital is buying equipment imagine a hospital having to buy a bedpan or bed sheets okay let's say a bed sheet was 20 bucks okay well imagine thousand hospitals each buying you know a thousand bed sheets that'd be you know, a million bed sheets. So eventually, people said, "Let's form together and be and have somebody purchase all these bed sheets for us." So, so we buy a million bed sheets and we get a lower cost. And so, paying twenty bucks, maybe we pay two bucks. Got it? So group purchasing
1: or something like that. Group purchasing all the hospitals. Exactly. So group purchasing organization. to one supply. Right.
0: So what happened over time was it was initially a good deal. Eventually, you ended up having. Three group purchasing organizations who became monopolies. They flipped the model. They ended up telling the hospitals, "Okay, even though that bedsheet was twenty, or let's say it was only two bucks, they charged them ten bucks." Okay, they were still making quite a bit of money, and the and they gave a little bit of kickback to those hospital administrators so they would keep quiet when the bedsheet is actually two dollars. Okay, so you have this massive corruption. Three major GPOs controlled. Yeah, and this is supported by the career politicians because career politicians are nothing but criminals. They are muppets and puppets that basically create layers between you and me, the everyday working person, and the actual services. You see, the cost of services is too high. So we get more taxes. They inflate the costs. And who gets screwed in this is everyday people. That's, that's what's actually going on. And the politicians serve for that interest because they don't fight for them. Until someone like me comes along or someone like Donald Trump came along. Because all of these guys have no other skills. They're not scientists. They're not inventors. They're not entrepreneurs. They're not plumbers. They're not electricians. They have no job. They go into politics to get elected, reelected, and essentially be middlemen. Let me take education, right? Education is the biggest scam. You have a student whose parents think he should go to college. And yep. what that student gets used as collateral by the university – to get student loans so the student the university prices fifty thousand dollars a semester so the student go gets a loan and they call it a student loan it's not a student loan it's a it's a gift to the university it goes from the service provider the student loan company to the university the university yes. takes that yes, money it
1: does
0: yeah but and then the, it
1: makes the student pay for it later
0: well it's even more insidious than in that the 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 the, the universities put it into their big endowment fund right? And they invested on Wall Street, on real estate. They get 10, 20% return, right? And that grows because the university administrators are compensated on how much they grow that endowment. So now the student is in debt around $200,000 by the time they graduate. They can't go bankrupt, right? Because the student loan companies have written their loan schedules like that. This student doesn't know what he's signing. And furthermore, if for some reason, by the way, there's 4.5 million people with about $40,000 on average loans, which is $1.8 trillion. If that all goes kaput, guess who pays for it? You and me, the American worker, okay? Not the universities, uh, not even those student loan companies. So here's my solution. Make those universities co-sign the loans. They should co-sign those loans. Why? Because if they co-sign those loans, that means you as a university, are responsible for that student's success if he doesn't get a job maybe you should advise him maybe you shouldn't get a degree in aardvark anthropology right maybe you shouldn't take that transgender studies course you know maybe it's good if you want to do it as a nice hobby but maybe you should go learn a skill maybe you should learn how to uh, be an electrician or a plumber or an engineer because but the universities don't do that because they've made their money and they continue to make that money off that loan if you look at the interest that they keep earning so now this
1: is a situation that in here is actually in the whole of the country. This is the system that's nationwide, right? With the universities nationwide.
0: This is a system of deep corruption. You know, my parents left India because of the corruption there. But I can tell you the corruption in the United States is so much more sophisticated that they take advantage of everyday working people beyond belief. You know,
1: you talked about Massachusetts being at the center of it, and that's actually very interesting. And you talked about Cambridge kind of being at the center of it and all of these tech companies, you know, situated around it. Um, So uh, do you see connections, obviously, between Massachusetts and Silicon Valley? And what are the connections you see between, for instance, Big Pharma and the universities and the hospitals? Is there corruption there, too? Well,
0: I I think what you have to understand is that the academics are the modern Brahmins of today. Okay, they're the priestly class, quote unquote, the priestly class. After 1970, the amount of funding that got moved to the National Science Foundation for Scientific Research made uh, science completely political. Okay, so basically a lot of mediocre and dumb people get to be professors at MIT and Harvard. All right. They're not that smart. What they do know is how to play politics. The real scientist gets ousted. And they build what's called scientific consensus, not the scientific method. So this – remember, 100 years ago, the scientific consensus was that the earth went around – the sun went around the earth, right? Right. Ninety-nine – 97% of people may have believed that one guy had the data. Today, that same elite group of people are saying that the scientific consensus is that CO2 is a pollutant. These people are idiots. CO2 is not a pollutant. They, there's $2 billion in uh, impact grants uh, for anyone who simply puts climate change on any grant application. MIT gets 20 to $40 million. And the reality is that the climate is a very complex system that trying to think that you're going to reduce this complex system to one variable called CO2 is absolutely absurd. And furthermore, there's no field called climate science. The field is fluid mechanics and radiative physics. And all of the experts in that field know it's completely nonsense that that CO two is actually a pollutant. The, the reality is climate always changes. The reality CO two is a greenhouse gas. The reality is greenhouse gases do increase temperature. The issue is how much. And the if you want to look at broader things, there's much more bigger phenomenon going on in terms of cosmic rays, in terms of the grand solar cycles. Um, the differentials the solar
1: be- cycles yeah the, yeah, solar the te- differentials between
0: temperatures between the Arctic and the equator, these things affect temperatures far more than carbon. but the Paris Accords, as I put out in my video, which was a great video, I think a million people have seen it now or more, basically I exposes agree. It-, it, it, it exposes in a very simple way that this is essentially about taxing everyday people. And and that's what I can do because you're looking at someone who's a fighter. I can take very complex things and make them accessible. Part of the priestly class, part of the Brahmanical model, is to make everything so freaking complicated that no one can understand it. They use
1: well. That's what's happened right now. Nobody really understands how science has gotten politicized. How indeed, you know, um, Harvard and MIT are influencing the globalist policies of climate MIT climate and Harvard are completely them.
0: cesspools. You know, the media lab is a complete cesspool. It should be shut down and people should have outrage at these institutions of power and they need to be cut off at their knees. One way is... Do
1: others see what you are seeing with Harvard and MIT being such cesspools? Everyday
0: working people do. Come to Cambridge. The the working folks do. When you say other people, the vulnerable, educated elites, we don't care about them. Okay. They're basically the people who went to school, have a huge loan, have to get A's so they need to get a job so they don't have any more critical thinking. They nod to their professors whatever they say because they want to get an A. And you can talk to people about this. They're afraid to challenge their professors on anything. The professors are sucking up to grant holders, right? So it's one entire line of sucking up to everything. That's there is why no I critical to ask thinking you about that whole line. I mean, what's
1: holding these profs in place? What's holding these academic programs? Well, it's in an
0: place? incestuous cesspool. Look at I, I just point you to Jeffrey Epstein. Right. Jeffrey Epstein bet, yes. was actually doing incestuous behavior at a very deep yeah. level. He had all of these academics to his island, all of these so-called leaders, right? And these people knew about it, and they continued funding him. It's so the so Jeffrey Epstein, took advantage of children, and academics take advantage of children, okay? They are both the most vile group of people that I know really well. As Donald Trump said, he knew the people in Wall Street, how they work, well, I know the academics. The academic establishment is the fake news behind fake news. You know, the media establishment, yeah, they're pretty easy to figure out. People have talked about them. Chomsky wrote Manufacturing Consent, but even Noam Chomsky never talked about academia because he had a good position at MIT. I love Noam, okay? But he was in a position where he couldn't attack his own institution. But the See, the
1: academics are seen as experts. The media quotes the academics as
0: experts. The media cuts and pastes academics. The academics are pay to play right now, okay? And after 1970, when the Mansfield Amendment got passed, which deliberately restricted the amount of funding that could go to basic science without any strings attached, most of it became part of the National Science Foundation. So most academics today are lemmings, Okay. They got rid of all the good academics. There are a few good people, but the great yeah, ones got, yeah. you don't survive if you're a radical, if you speak your mind, etc. You'll be tossed right. out. Yeah, N- I know. So I, I think the, the most important thing is Massachusetts is the epicenter of the deep state. Joe Kennedy is the epitome of aristocracy. Ed Markey is the epitome of an entrenched, corrupt person. Elizabeth Warren, complete fake person, complete example of the aristocracy. That's why they were so afraid of me. They didn't want to put me on the debate stage because had I got on the debate stage, the working people in this state, in this country, for that matter, in the world would have known what a real fighter looks like. And they don't want real fighters. That's why this time we're going to win, because the last election, people know how they mistreated me and people saw it. They kept us off the debate stage. They wouldn't allow us to participate. The same thing that my uh, seventh grade high school teacher tried to pull on me. Right. I was the best guy, but they wouldn't put me on the stage. Right, but
1: this is like open racist discrimination. It's not
0: only it's not only racist; it's against working people. I'm not just a brown-skinned Indian guy, but I'm a brown-skinned, you know, not only an Indian guy, but I'm a working-class guy who came from nothing. My heroes are my eighth-grade teacher, worked three jobs, you know. (laughs) Those You're are basically my people. saying that the white working class, or the
1: brown working class, or the black working class, has more in commonality with you than, say, the educated elitist Indians who came here. Oh yeah, the they're, they're
0: complete scumbags. Excuse my language. Okay, these people never will never support me in anything I run. I don't even look to them. And I just we have a multiracial aristocracy in the United States. Multiracial aristocracy. Which you know many. Do, not know, but do you know but
1: do you trace that for instance as many people do do you know the secret societies the Yale skull and bones yeah
0: I don't know about all this stuff I don't even need to go there we don't need to even go to the we can just look right here just walk down to Harvard and see the kind of people that are there it's I mean it's a multi-racial aristocracy black brown yellow white it's one group of aristocrats who think they're better than you and me and they get uh, they exist uh, to perpetuate and to take advantage of the working people of all colors. And that's why I say, you know, I, I titled this "Cast from India to America. We basically have a caste system in this country. What I thought my parents left in India exists here. And the election of 2020 by an untouchable Indian guy who came from working class neighborhoods in New Jersey and, came and has been in Massachusetts for 38 years is an opportunity to send a shockwave by us winning in Massachusetts. Not only is it a win to Massachusetts, but it's for this country and for the world because uh, Massachusetts or Boston is considered the Athens of the world. So anyway, I hope this helped understand why I'm running. If people want to know more about our campaign, they can go to shivaforsenate.com. But everyone out there listening has a huge opportunity you know, to win. And, you know, I'm one of you and I'll win for you. That's really what this is about. You need a real fighter, not these fake fighters.
1: Can I also ask you what your stance is regarding Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, and a more nationalist American sense of, um, you know, keeping this country whole and separate from this kind of globalist ambitions?
0: Well, look, the, the bottom line is that if you take it from a very spiritual perspective, right, each person has to stand up on their own two feet and you have to build resilience, right? You have to do that in your local community. So all these people who say they're for localism. I don't know why they're not for good progressive nationalism, right? Because it says that all things begin at home. And Absolutely. when you're strong and you rise up, you can help other people. And in communities of good local communities or good people who care about their country, um, that's a good thing. So anyone who says you shouldn't have borders around your country... You know, it's completely insane. If you take the biological perspective, everything in nature has borders. Our, 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 our body has a border called the skin. Every cell has a cell membrane. Every plant cell wall has a plant. You know, everything has borders. You know, and everything modulates what goes in and out. Nature in its infinite wisdom has always created borders. Now... Uh, the second aspect of nationalism, should we go fight and beat up other countries? And Trump's trying to get us, stop us from doing that because the military industrial academic complex wants us to go start killing people. We'll always wrap it up in you're, you're fighting some war for freedom and etc. cetera. My issues, is let people figure out their issues. Let each person in those countries stand up. Um, you know, we don't need Bill Gates going and helping the Africans, frankly. Okay, that's neo-missionary nonsense. He doesn't want to help Africans for some progressive reason he wants help them so he could go dominate and buy a lot of land there okay the africans well, knew how to take care of malaria long before things, he was there he? what's that i'm sorry i don't mean to talk
1: over you um it's we may have some kind of audio lag over here it's uh, he's also doing some things that are very very dangerous isn't he i mean with the polio vaccines and uh, all of the stuff that's in vaccines and we know about the polio well, vaccine deaths and injuries right in india
0: yeah if you look at Bill Gates, and you look at Monsanto, they're very closely tied at the hip. Monsanto is a company who has dirtied our water, dirtied our food, and dirtied our air altogether. That company, if you go to their website, is promoting climate change. Okay? Think about it. Bill Gates promotes vaccines. He promotes big pharma. He promotes genetically engineered foods. You go down the list. And he is a big, big proponent and it very, I think he owns about a half a million shares at one point in Monsanto. And that company was completely exposed, so exposed that they had to change their brand under a uh, baby aspirin brand, now they're under Bayer. But the bottom line is that when you take up the topic of vaccines, um, it's a very interesting topic because from a scientific perspective, the goal is to get immunity. You want to have a resilient right. body which can stand up to pathogens, right? That's really the goal. Now, in traditional times, uh, people were exposed. You played in dirt. You got exposed to all sorts of pathogens. And when those pathogens came through the natural way through your mucous membranes in your innate immune system, right through your nose, through your eyes, um, and then they innervated a secondary system called the adaptive immune system, um, you got tremendous resilience. Now, the theory was, well, let's short-circuit that and go right into the bloodstream. And the theory is that that is creating immunity. Well, that's creating a false immunity. What that's doing is yes, it's upregulating antibodies, but just like measuring the entire climate using one variable called CO2 is ridiculous. Measuring the entire immune system just by looking at antibodies is also a reductionist model. There are many other chemicals that need to be upregulated in your body to have a healthy immune system, not just an antibody. And that comes when things come through the immune system. And this aspect is left out of the equation. And so we used to have three, uh, one vaccine, three vaccines. Now young people have to take around 30 different vaccines, 70 different doses. A, a baby born, first day has to get hepatitis B, which is typically for IV drug users. So the, uh, what's happening here is to make the human population, if it proceeds in this model, addicted to vaccines. Because when you don't get natural immunity, you actually hurt your body's ability to get resilience. Now, I can talk about this from a scientific perspective. We'll challenge anyone. But my issue is we need to have risk assessment and we need to take an engineering systems approach and one size does not fit all. And this is really the promise of modern medicine, personalized medicine, precision medicine, which is what the Indian systems are all about anyway.
1: Right. But I, 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 um,
0: I, I hope this medicine. is valuable. I, I don't want to cut it short, but we can do a follow-up. But,
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think you you know, obviously you, you know, talking about your platform is very, very important and interesting to everybody who's watching. But also, I do think because of your science and technological background and across the range, it seems from physics to biology, you have so much to offer to educate people on um, the right direction to go in, in terms well, of all of these highly controversial fields like vaccines. And um, and climate change. So, well, the you know, bottom really
0: line is you, you're looking at someone who still works with his hands, who came from everyday working people. I'm a scientist and an inventor and an entrepreneur and a fighter. So I'm looking forward to this, you know, and the people in Massachusetts, the people in this country, the people in this world deserve a fighter like me because people like me. Uh, don't need to do this per se. Most people who take this path sort of are on some island somewhere, you know, chilling out. But I do this because I feel a great sense of obligation and loyalty to not only those people who had nothing where I grew up in India, but to the working people in New Jersey and in this country who helped me. So anyway, yeah. thank you, Ramola.
1: Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dr. Shiva. How can people help you
0: or work for you or find out more about well, what you're doing? We, we, do you have a new book coming out? Do you want to do that? Yeah, yeah, I have uh, yeah, I right I don't now. like, you know, I have a book coming out called The Climate of Science. It's gonna be coming out. It exposes okay. the entire Brahmanical, priestly academics, and it takes every issue and it shows how the academic establishments always convert something to a fake problem and a fake solution. And how if you take a systems approach to something, you can actually find the real problem, and the real solution. We do this across seven. First of all, we expose how this academic establishment works. And then we take every issue and we look at what the real problem is and what the real solution is. It's, 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 a, it's a great book. It's going to be a handbook for revolution in many ways, for truth, freedom and health. And then um, if anyone wants to help, go to Shiva for Senate s-h-i-v-a numeral four senate com um you can volunteer if you're in massachusetts we need a lot of volunteers if you want to give millions of dollars you can do so too uh or you can give one dollar it's up to you um but we you know i'm a still a frugal entrepreneur last time when we ran we spent 70 cents for a vote elizabeth warren spent 33 dollars a vote okay it's a whole nother level of corruption we can talk about so we know how to win um on the ground and win for working people thank you so shiva for thank you thank you
1: so much dr shiva thanks everybody for watching and i hope we'll see you again very soon bye Bye-bye. for now bye.